Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to Books and Critical Theory. I'm your host, Dr. Dave O'Brien. On this episode, I'm talking to Marshall Poe, who's the founder of the New Books Network, about his new book, How to Read a History Book, The Hidden History of History, which is published by Zero Books. So welcome to New Books and Critical Theory. On this episode, I'm absolutely delighted to have Marshall Poe with me. You might be familiar with his voice from the introductions to uh, the New Books and Critical Theory podcast. And he has written a book uh, called How to Read a History Book, uh, which is a really interesting book that is very, very kind of well-timed and captures lots of the different things that are going on, both with book production, with history as a kind of professional activity, um, but also speaks to the, I guess, wider kind of social situation around academic life. So welcome uh, to the podcast. Uh, Delighted to be here. Thank you very much, Dave. Yeah, and it's it's great to have you. I, I suppose... We we can't but speak about the network, and I wonder actually if you'd give you know a kind of flavour of uh, what you've been doing with the network as a as a way to introduce yourself and, and the book. Right. Well, like the British Empire, the New Books Network was founded in a fit of absent-mindedness. <laughs> um, um, you know, I founded it a long time ago because I thought that people weren't reading monographs. Now, there's good reasons not to read monographs, as we both know. But they weren't really getting the ideas out of them. And uh, I did find that kind of sad that all of this good work was being done and it really wasn't being consumed by people. Well, this was about the time that podcasts were becoming a thing. And uh, I was interviewed for something that I had written. And then it um, dawned on me that I might do the same kind of thing with historians. And so I started doing that. I taught myself the minimal skills that are necessary. And really, there aren't very many of them. And I interviewed historians just to see if people would listen to one, you know, egghead talk to another egghead about uh, a kind of eggheadish book. And it turns out that they did, and in pretty large numbers, which was very gratifying in a way, but not gratifying in another way because I sort of saw my future. I don't know if you've ever had one of these moments where you're like, hmm, that worked. Uh oh. <laughs> and so then it, it just occurred to me that maybe I was doing the wrong thing. I was a professor at the time at a university in the United States. And you know, I kind of had this, if not me, who, if not now, when moment and said, I will answer the call to adventure and uh, quit my job and do this, which is what I did. Uh, whether that was a good uh, idea or not, I don't know yet. <laughs> so anyway, the network is, as you know, uh, you came on, what was five years ago now, I guess. And the network has grown a lot. You know, it does seem like a long time ago, doesn't it? You do these things and you wonder. So the network's about I guess it's roughly 10 years old and we started with one channel and now we have 80 and we started with one host, me, and now we have 230 and we started downloading almost no episodes and now we download, you know, 20 to 25,000 a day, I would say. So we have a pretty big audience and, you know, most of the credit for that goes to the hosts, all of whom like you are volunteers. You guys have jobs and you take time out of your jobs and lives to do these interviews with your colleagues to spread the good word about what they do. So as I say, really all of the credit should go to all of the volunteers who are hosts on the network. And I should say, if anybody's interested in hosting a podcast, they should contact me. 
<laughs> so, yeah. That is, that is an excellent pitch. I, I, I sense you've, you've done that one before. Well, yeah, a little bit. You know, people ask me occasionally what the hell happened. <laughs> I ended up here. <laughs> so, I got, yeah, I got it down. I, I, got, I, got, a, uh, I got an elevator pitch. And it, it, it's funny because that, I guess, the, the thing that motivated you to start the network must have, have, have been a motivation for, for this new book, How to Read a History Book. And one of the kind of like great killer kind of opening moments in the book is this question, why would I want to read a book about history books? So why do I want to read a book about history books? Yeah, well, really, I wrote the book uh, for a very concrete reason, and that is I was teaching history to American undergraduates. And what I realized that... I realized that they didn't really have any idea who I was as a kind of anthropological artifact, like where I had come from and what I had done that enabled me to talk to them about history. And then behind, of course, the things that I was teaching them were monographs and they had no idea what a monograph was. And even when I had them read them or dip their toes in them, they still didn't really understand what they were or who produced them or why they were produced or whether they were new or old. And it just struck me that when I think about history, I always think about a history book. That's the kind of container that we pour historical wisdom in now. And I know it wasn't always the case that we poured that wisdom into those containers. And I know how I was trained and socialized to produce such a thing and what kind of person I am and how that shaped what the history, modern history book looks like. So I just sort of thought if I look at it kind of like an anthropologist would as an artifact they found on the ground and then they said, well, what the hell is this? Let me interview some of the natives to find out what it is. Then if I could pass that wisdom on to undergraduates, then they would be able to understand what we were doing much better. And not only undergraduates, but anybody who picks up a history book from the bookstore or orders it from Amazon or wherever or gets it from the library, kind of understand what it is. Because, you know, it, it contains a lot of kind of hidden information about the culture that produced it. For good information, you know, things that you would regret and things that, you know, that are actually very good about our culture. So that's really why I did it. And then uh, I guess. And why would you yeah. want it? Why, so that's why you would want to read the book. I mean, essentially, is because if you wanted a deeper understanding. Now, historians, of course, they have fancy words for everything because they have PhDs. They would call this an exercise in historiography. That sounds very grand, doesn't it? Well, nobody knows what the hell that means outside <laughs> an academic department. But anyway, it's the study. It's the it's the study of history. Um, you know, it's it's the history of history, you might say, or how we construct these stories. And and really, that's all the book is. It's just if you're going to read about history in the contemporary climate, contemporary artifacts, histories, articles, you probably should know some historiography. That is, what, what, what is this thing that contains this information? How was it produced? Who produced it? And so on and so forth. And you can better understand the artifact and what it says in that way. So that's why you'd want to read it. Also, I think you should read it because it's funny. At least that was the attempt. <laughs> so I was a history undergraduate. We did, you know, what I guess the Americans would call HIST 101, which, you know, gave us that sense of like, here's historiography, various tomes usually written by dead white men about you know the practice of history how you do writing weighing up sources all of this kind of stuff and that book you know your book is not like that at all your book no is it's not like that at all. story of elizabeth 
So can you kind of yeah. use Elizabeth as a, I guess, you know, a character, a literary device as our Yeah. Our so I, re I really wanted to, I wanted to write a book that would be entertaining for the people that, that read it. And so I used the sort of standard literary device and I embodied what I wanted to say in a person. And the woman in question is Elizabeth Ronka. Of course, people who listen to this podcast know that Leopold Ronka was kind of the founder of modern historiography in the 19th century. So that's a little inside joke. But I thought that I would just take her from the moment she almost was born to the moment she dies in a historian's career in the contemporary United States to see what it is that she learns about writing history books and how she does it and the compromises that are made and the opportunities that are presented and the stories that can be told because it's by following her life that you kind of see how the artifact itself is um, – it's formed, and she's also a really big booze bag, so that, that's kind of funny. She's, she's an engaging character, <laughs> and that, that plays out. I think, you know, she's a little bit, you know, she's sort of me in a way, obviously, but, and I used to be a big booze bag, but, the, the, you know, she has a life, and she has to fit writing history books into her life. So that's, that's part of the attraction. You get to, she has a narrative arc, as they say. Yeah, no shit, very much so. And and actually, it's a narrative arc that I guess allows you to to tell this story of the history book in a a really informal and really informative way. So you know, I've read various books about like how disciplines work, how publishing functions and stuff. And and this book is much more kind of like you know, you can pick it up, read it in the afternoon, very sort of engaged. Yeah, that's the other thing. Not only is it funny, it's short, so that's good. Short's good. That is, that is very good. And I'll, I'll give you a chance to kind of like illustrate this, you know, engaging uh, nature of the book by telling me what the German model of history is uh, and, and what the problem is. Yeah, the German model of history. Well, you know, that's really how we do history today. And it's the kind of standard things that you learn in Hist 101. That is, there are these things, sources, and there are these things called archives, and they were produced by actors, and we call them primary sources. And you go and you look at these artifacts, they might not all be written. They might be, you know, physical artifacts of various kinds too. And, you know, if you're a dendrologist, a den dendrology, is that what it's called? Yes. The study of tree rings, that's a different kind of evidence. And, you know, you go back and you look at these artifacts that are from this place called the past. You can't go there, but we say it exists and they exist in the present. And what we do is we take them and we pull all the information out of it. We put it in chronological order. And we write these things, histories. And that really, that way of doing things is really a very modern invention, especially in the university. is isn't to say that there weren't people that did that before. There were, but it wasn't institutionalized in the way it was by the Germans in the mid-19th century who had decided that the university as a research institution, like we understand it today, was a really good idea and that the government should fund it. Uh, nobody really did this prior to that. Universities were, and I'm sure my historian colleagues will hate me for saying this, they were places where you learned how to be a priest or a pastor or something like that. Um, and you might engage in some kind of esoteric scholastic philosophy, but generally speaking, they were places for godly people to learn how to be more godly and go off and you know tend their flocks. They, they weren't research institutions as we understand them. So the Germans kind of put all these things together, the library, the seminar, um, the state-sponsored, in this case, structure, that is the state's going to pay for it. And they created, or they uh, really 
they adapted the cursus honorum. Is that how you pronounce that? I don't know. My Latin is bad. That had always existed in the university. That as you go through this bachelor thing and a master thing and a PhD thing, and they sort of just applied it. And so they started to produce these things, history PhDs. And these history PhDs knew how to do history as we understand it. And, and Ronk is really one of the first of them. And then that spread to the United States. Actually, it spread everywhere uh, because it was a really good idea and it worked especially where in the, in the sciences. So this sort of evidence-based approach built on seminars and books. They always published books. Books were the kind of status item. Um, articles were good too, but it depends on the discipline. In history, it became the book. It spread everywhere. And we, we know exactly how it came to the United States because the history of the United States is really simple. <laughs> <laughs> in that sense, you know, because at that time, if you wanted to be a an intellect in the United States and you, you went to Germany to study. So the sons and daughters of elites in the United States, East Coast elites sent their sons, well, their sons, I don't know about their daughters, to Germany to study. And the guy that brought it over here, we know who he was. We know where he went. He went to Johns Hopkins and he set up the first history seminar. And it was the German model, plain, plain and simple. And uh he also brought over other institutions that were th – this one actually from the UK or England at the time and that was the University Press. That was another one of these institutions that was important because you, know, you write these things based on archival documents or whatever. Then you have to publish them and who's going to publish them? Well, exactly nobody is going to publish them because they don't have an audience. So you need somebody to publish them and that's the university press. So once you get all these things together and that's the early 19th century – I mean early 20th century in the United States, that is the library, the seminar, um, the professoriate, the university press and the history book, then you have the discipline. And uh, after that, the rest is history. So that's really the German rule. Now, as you say, I should say, let me just add one thing. I mean, this is very different than history had history, quote unquote, had been treated in other cultures at other times. These history stories are true stories about the past. Now, what true means is anyone's guess, really, because, you know, a story can have truth and still be fiction. Um, for example, what we're told to say, at least I, I think this is true, that in the Renaissance, people wrote histories in a kind of didactic fashion. They wanted to tell stories that people could learn from. And that way they were like parables or something. Um, you know, uh, traditional peoples, if I may be allowed to say that, they have you know, a different sort of story, heroic epics and things like this that involve, you know, gods and men interacting. That's what the Greeks did. And there are lots of ways to look at the past and try to have it inform the future. This kind of, I would really call it scientific, if I may be allowed that, this sort of scientific approach to it, that is that the most important thing is that the story that you tell has to be true and it has to be confirmed by evidence. That's a really new thing. And that's really kind of where we planted our flag and that that is where uh, most modern historians are today in terms of methodology and and obviously you, you gesture towards that being you know uh, maybe there are trade-offs in that system you know it, it's not it's not perfect and the way of kind of illustrating this is the story of, of elizabeth which uh, i guess you know publishing history books that are you know true uh, scientific she's trained but also don't have the audience and a dependence on particular kind of conventions. And I guess the place to start is kind of 
how she gets involved in in any of this before we get into the kind of well yeah the, yeah sure and i and i thought it was important you know these are stereotypes clearly but they if you study statistics they kind of try to trace what they call the central tendency so certainly there are outliers but most of the people of my acquaintance who are history professors their parents were history professors or at least professors or at the very least professionals and they were predominantly white now, this is changing a lot. It used to be they were male when I first entered the discipline, and that was 30 years ago. But now they're actually predominantly female. I think there are more female history professors than there are male ones. So that, that obviously has changed a lot. But, you know, this is kind of, you know, the it's, it's a class within the United States. It's a kind of discreet, you know, you might call it, I don't know. It's, um, you know, the kind of person is homo academicus, you know, that they, they really kind of know the way to negotiate careers. And this is the same way that a plumber's son would know how to negotiate a career in plumbing or a lawyer's son would know how to negotiate a career in law or what have you. You know, this is kind of institutional knowledge that's passed down. So Elizabeth's one of these people and she's from the East Coast and and and, and she goes to a good school because in the United States, we divide schools between you know, good and everything else. And so she goes to something like an Ivy League school or close to it. You know, it gets ranked highly in US News and World Report. And that's really almost what's necessary to take the next step. If you you want to be pretty sure that you're going to enter the professoriate, you need to have signaled that you're smart. And the way that you do that is you go to one of these schools. And that's, that's because Elizabeth is smart. I don't want to give the impression that they uh, that, that she's really the beneficiary of any great privilege. I mean, the woman works like crazy all the time. And she's really smart. <laughs> I mean, there's no question that she uh, has earned her seat at the table. So she goes to one of these schools, you know, and uh, then she decides at some point that uh, her thing in the weird way that people decide these things in liberal arts colleges is, is history. And she has a mentor who's also a historian and she wrote some stuff that she likes. And then the, then the institution really starts to engage itself because she has to go on to graduate school. And the, it's the same sort of system recapitulated on another level. That is, you have to go to a certain, there's a certain number of graduate schools that you really want to go to. Uh, there are 10 of them or so that if you want, if you want to get a job, because by this time, and, you know, Elizabeth, say 20, 21, uh, she, she, her advisor, who's a smart woman, has told her uh, a really remarkable statistic. And that is that 50% of the people who get PhDs in history in the United States don't really ever teach. You kind of have to let that sink in. <laughs> you know, this is a huge gamble because you're going to spend eight, 10 years of your life because that's the average time to degree doing this thing. And it may even cost you a lot of money. Back in my day, we didn't have all the fellowships that they have today. Um, it may even cost you money. And then at the end of it, you're not going to have a job in your field. It's like there's a pretty much 50% chance of that. That's, and, and some sub-disciplines, we'll talk about sub-disciplines in a second, it's much worse. You know, If you're an American historian, well, pardon the expression, but they're a dime a dozen. And you know, your chances of actually getting a tenure-track job are really low. I mean, sure, if you do something that's uh, uh, fashionable, depending on what fashionable is, and that changes, then your chances are a little bit better. But Elizabeth doesn't can't really check all the great boxes because she's not an ethnic minority, any you know, and she's actually not a minority at all. She's in a majority because many women become historians, and so she has to really think very carefully about this. And what her parents tell her to do is go be a lawyer, <laughs> and that's probably the best advice she ever got. So she's, but she, you know, she's young and foolish and she's going to do this thing. And so she does. And, and, uh, you know, her, 
advisors, undergraduate reaches out to people and I won't say strings are pulled, but people are talked to and you know, she's a good student. She's really good, but she makes it to the next level and she goes to graduate school. And then she finally learns what being a histor historian really is. I mean, that, like those gestures, I guess, to how college is structured are so crucial. Um, we might come back to questions about evidence and archives, but one of the chapters that really struck me was the academic job market and how that really shapes how history gets written over and above what's in the archive and you know what we can know about the past and, and stuff like that. And I wonder actually if you could say a bit about how the academic job mar market functions to kind of shape yeah. what stories well, get I mean, and what don't. Yeah, just to editorialize it for a second at least, I think Elizabeth knows at this time that the entire process is completely corrupt in the sense that the people that cause the problem are professors themselves, but they refuse to do anything about it. They take twice as many graduate students as can get jobs. This still happens today. And uh, what they do as a kind of a sop is they hold uh, you know, the occasional seminar at the AHA that says this, you know, the skills that we gave you as a historian are super valuable. You can go out and get a job with them. Well, that's just bullshit. I mean, I can tell you as somebody who runs a business, what you learn as a Renaissance historian is how to be a Renaissance historian. Writing is not a skill where everybody can write, you know, um, you know, being able to uh, read, you know, 16th century Venetian Latin, that's a skill. There's just no call for it. And so uh, it's really, you know, it's, it's a kind of upsetting thing for anybody who enters the discipline to realize that the people that are going to be deciding your fate are the people who caused the problem and, and there can't be any, and they won't do anything about it. So uh, that's not universally true. Let me say that. I used to teach in an apartment at the University of Iowa that did do something about it and they refused essentially to accept graduate students that they, be, they knew they couldn't get jobs for. But um, that's, I think, pretty rare. Mostly they just accept lots of people and just realize that they're sending them down the primrose path. And maybe that's good because maybe they sort themselves out in that way and you just get the best ones who succeed. I don't know. That could be true. But this is kind of a pall that just lies over the entire thing, that there's just this huge, at the end of eight years, you're going <laughs> to, it's not going to be good for you. And whose fault is it? Well, it's your advisor's fault. <laughs> because your advisor and all of your advisor's colleagues want to accept all these people and they're not going to make it. So that, you know, that, that, that would cause you to wonder whether you really wanted to do this. But as I say, you know, 22 year old Elizabeth is kind of foolish. And then in terms of the choice of topic, well, that, that's, that's an interesting thing. You obviously have to choose something that's relevant. You have to kind of see what is hot. You know, when I was in graduate school, this was in the uh, late eighties, Michel Foucault was very big and the number of Michel Foucault dissertations that made people's reputation, well, that was really good. I mean, that worked. Um, if you, you know, if you, if you pursued that line of thinking, um, uh, what was sometimes called the linguistic turn, and I'm probably confusing these things, but you know, that fashion, you saw it and you saw how people that pursued that fashion did or particular topics. You know, if you study oppressed people, that's probably better than not because, uh, academics, tend to be very liberal and they, they, they want to feel as if they're helping oppressed people, even though they're not oppressed themselves in the slightest, um, nor do they really help oppressed people, <laughs> but they, they want to think that they are. So you, you should do that. Um, you know, minority groups, uh, people that have been disenfranchised in various ways, you know, these things structure what we're interested in. And maybe we should be interested in these things for good reason. But from Elizabeth's point of view and from the point of view of anyone who's entering graduate school in history, you've got to think hard about what you're going to write about. You really do. Because if you write about some, you know, some, you know, a good example is military history. Well, that's just a disaster. 
you know, liberals don't generally like uh, uh, armies and guns and things like this. And you're probably not going to get a job as a military historian. Um, so you definitely want to avoid that. Uh, oppressed people, that's much better. Uh, historians like that kind but, of thing. But you might get book contracts as a military yeah, exactly. historian. People might actually read your books. That's true. So it's really interesting that there are these, you know, clusters of biography, military history that really sell. Publishers love them, but obviously academics are quite sniffy about. And you set out how academics really almost think of them as as not proper history or not professional history, the kind of things that amateurs would do. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, what Elizabeth learns is is that it's a history department's a very balkanized. Um, I don't think most people know this. That they are usually cut along regional lines which is intersected by temporal lines. So there will be historians of various kinds of people that you have your German historian and your Japanese historian and your maybe Australian historian, your English historian, and you're a bunch of American historians because, you know, um, American history departments particular tend to be uh, American heavy, which is only appropriate. And then you'll cut this by time. And so there'll be your one medievalist. And if you're lucky, you get the classicist in, a, in a, an apartment, maybe two. And then the early modernists and then a bunch of modernists because that you can kind of maps what interests are. But it's very balkanized and you've got to pick one of these. Right? You don't you don't get to be a generalist. No more generalists. The last generalists died. I don't know. I don't know if there were ever any generalists. But you are not a generalist. You study something very specific. And, you know, as they say about professors, you, you really have to choose to know more and more about less and less if you want to succeed. So they, they put you in one of these. They assign you to somebody who's already basically – occupying one of these pigeonholes and they teach you how to further occupy this pigeonhole. I'm not saying that's bad. Specialization is a good thing, but it does cause you to think very hard about what you're going to do. You would never go to history graduate school because you liked history. <laughs> that would be a bad move. You go to graduate school like Elizabeth did because she really was interested in, um, uh, you know, uh, radical feminist movements in the 1960s. Very specifically that. Nothing else. That that's her interest, and she finds advisors who can teach her just about that, because that is the thing that she will write her history book about. And and she does indeed write a history book about it, but it isn't really about that. It's about um, a particular case study, um, and I guess this is kind of one way that there's a mismatch between how to sell a book. Um, how to be a professional historian, and then how to occupy an archive. So I, I wonder if you could talk me through kind of the story of Elizabeth's book. Right. Well, you know, she decides on this topic and she negotiates it with her quite wise and very good advisor. And her advisor says, you know, I had this, that, and the other problem. So you probably want to do this, that, and the other thing and focus it here and put your efforts there. And uh, I think this will be sellable on the job market. And it gets repackaged a bunch of times. And essentially what she does is what all historians do is, is she finds an archive. Because most history books are built on, you know, a kind of set of documents that are produced by one or more institutions. And in her case, she finds that. Well, this just makes our work very convenient because you can do it all in one place. Now, you will see history books that say, you know, I went to 83 archives. And that, that is, some people do that, and that's pretty amazing. But most history books, you kind of find one or two archives that have all of these documents that enable you to tell a story, and she finds that. And she goes to this archive, and she works really hard in it because she's very smart and been well-trained. And she tries to reconstruct 
what happened with this particular women's organization that she's studying and 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 the the technique for all that you would read in a journal of you know historiographical theory is pretty simple you take the documents you pull essentially facts out of them and you put them in chronological order <laughs> i don't know if that's too simplistic but you know chronology is the soul of history and that's what she does is she goes in she she tries to figure out what happened literally what happened, the steps in the evolution of this organization. And the archive sort of tells her, but there are lots of gaps in it. And if the archive itself isn't very well organized, then we find this to be the case, for example, in many places in Africa, because the state wasn't very powerful and wasn't thinking about these things, a lot of these archives are not well organized. So the first thing the historian has to do is go organize the archive. And many of the people that I really respect as historians, have done nothing but organized archives because that really pays dividends for for everybody that follows. Those people are great. And so, you know, Elizabeth has to do a little bit of that because it's kind of a mess. And, you know, what do you do with your old papers? I throw mine in a box. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, I, I hate to think somebody looking through my papers trying to figure out what I did. So anyway, that's what she has to do. And, um, you know, she does a good job of it. But, you know, I think back to your question, she has to package it in a certain way. And, and, and that is to appeal to the people that might be hiring her. Well, she knows there are these slots for women historians. This is a thing, right? It's an institutionalized perch. And so she's going to aim for that. And her her, you know, her advisor says, you really need to aim for this. So narrow your focus to that. And, you know, she might not be interested in that, but that's, you know, that's one of the compromises you make. And she says, well, you know, modern is better than pre-modern. So you want to do modern and left is better than right generally. So let's do left. And uh, so, you know, she has to think strategically in this way because the thing she's really thinking about, and this is, uh, you know, I, I, it's a little bit unfortunate, is really getting a job and not writing a great history book. Because she's worried about it because 50% of her colleagues won't. And I would be worried about that too. Um, so she thinks about these things and her, her book gets shaped in this way. And then she also has to think about whether it could ever be published. And, you know, that, that, that is something too. Because to get tenure, you have to publish a book. This is also quite a recent thing. When I went to or college as an undergraduate, this is in the 80s, I don't think you really had to publish a book. But now everybody has to publish a book to get tenure. So she has to think about that too. And she has, you know, this is a little bit down the line because her dissertation is not even done yet. But um, she, has to, she has to consider which press might publish her book. So all these things go into the, the decision that she's making, practical considerations about what she's going to study and how she's going to study it and what she's eventually going to say about it. Maybe we can jump forward a little because there's a – it's not a sad end to the book, but um, Elizabeth makes it, which, you know, she is one of the, the, the 50%. You know, she gets a job. Maybe it's not the exact kind of job she wanted. And, you know, she publishes this well-regarded uh, book that is a specific case study but also speaks to the wider kind of feminist movement um, in the 1960s. But then the back end of the book kind of talks through her doubts and her kind of like regrets about the book. And I, I thought that was a really useful way of thinking more generally about the issues of writing history um, on, on lots of different levels, actually. Um, and, and that story, I think, is, is, is really, uh, is, yeah, it's very well, interesting. She starts to drink a lot, you know, because one of the things historians learn after they publish that book and get that job and they get tenure is that they're teachers. <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a little like a friend of mine said about law school. He said, law school is just fantastic. It's so interesting. All these really interesting and smart people get to read all these really interesting cases. It's just so much human drama. The problem is that when you're done, you're a lawyer. 
<laughs> so in this case, what happens to most historians is, is that, you know, you, you spend, especially your years between 18 and, you know, let's say 30 as a researcher. But then once you get your job and get tenure, you're a teacher. And I think that's the, you know, the, it rubs people a little bit the wrong way. Um, because they have, they don't think of themselves as just teachers, and sometimes some of them are really great teachers and cotton onto it really well. I don't know that Elizabeth really did because she was interested in the material, and she was also interested in in uh, essentially grabbing the brass ring. I mean, this having a goal is an important motivator. What is your goal after you get tenure? Well, nobody seems to know. Another book like the one you just wrote. Well, you've done that. But there really isn't anything else. So she's a little bit bummed about this. And she's a thoughtful person. So she thinks, you know, what's the value of my work? And one of the things that she realizes is she wrote this book, which is a very good book. You know, it's built on she was well-trained. She's smart. She's conscientious. You know, she's everything you could hope in a historian. But nobody read her book. And this is upsetting for her. And this is why I founded the New Books Network, to make people like Elizabeth happy. <laughs> no. But really, you know, she thinks, well, people should read my book. And then she thinks, well... Why should they read my book exactly? Is there anything in my book that anyone really needs to know? And, you know, she ponders this for a while and she says, well, if you're an expert in, you know, the women's history of late 20th century United States or maybe even specifically the history of radical political movements among women and later, sure, you would want to do that. If you were writing a more general story, you would want to know what I said. But if you weren't a person like that, maybe not. The topic is pretty narrow, doesn't exactly speak to universal human concerns. It's probably not one of the best things ever written by humankind. So she begins to doubt whether she, ha you know, what she did has any value at all. And this, this causes a kind of a crisis for her and she drinks a lot. <laughs> and she does wonder, you know, about what, what, what value is all this? Sure, she teaches, and that's good, and she thinks she's conscientious about that. She teaches. She teaches well. She's well-regarded by her students and her peers, and she goes to conferences, and she does all these things. But, you know, she thinks, well, what's the value of this? We spend all of these resources producing people like me, and we work really hard, and there's blood, sweat, and toil, and we produce these books, and what is the value of it? What is the broader sort of universal value of what I'm doing here? What, what is it exactly if nobody's reading these books? And the payoff to the book kind of answers that. Like, obviously, in the current political moment in the States, it's so obvious, isn't it? Um, that, you know, the defense of kind of having almost, it's a cliche, but, you know, having the facts. Yeah. And, and this is what she finally arrives at. And I, I think it's, you know, since Elizabeth is me, it's what I finally arrived at, too. I mean, just to wax a little bit autobiographical here for a second. I studied medieval Russian history and I often ask my students, medieval and early modern Russian history, and I always ask my students and even people in academia, can you name one single fact about medieval or early modern Russian history? And generally they can't. Sometimes they can come up with Ivan the Terrible. Often they, times they come up with Catherine the Great and horses, but that's wrong because that was later. <laughs> um, so, you know, I got nothing. I got no traction. I got no public traction at all out of this. I had some great colleagues who were super smart and I thought the material was absolutely fascinating. And I feel really privileged to have worked with those people in those materials, both Russian and American and some Germans and some English people. It was great. But, you know, I, I did wonder like, what in the hell why, why am I spending my short time on the earth doing this and writing these books about something that really only a very few people care about at all? Um, the, the, the teaching, I, I felt that was rewarding. Um, 
But even there, you know, you kind of have to ask yourself, you teach a class on early Russian history. I mean, you always have to ask the question, who cares? Why is this valuable to anyone? Am I taking time from these students that might be better spent someplace else doing something else? I'm not sure of that. Now, granted, I have tenure and they're paying me what is a pretty good salary for this. I have a good life in the sense of, you know, I'm materially taken care for and I get to call myself, <laughs> I don't know about you, but the only time I ever call myself Dr. Poe is when I make reservations at airlines. <laughs> they seem to like it. <laughs> I think I get special treatment there. But yeah, you know, I was thinking, well, you know, I, I don't know about this. I, I, that, have I made a contribution to something? And and so in, in terms of, of status and well-being, great. But in terms of meaning, I, I did sort of wonder about what I had done. I had always had my eyes on this prize and I, and I fought really hard to get it and worked really hard to get it and got a lot of good breaks. And, and so that was terrific. But, you know, I just remember many times sitting in my office, like, I, I, what am I doing? What, why, what is the point of all this? Why, why can't I see, why can't I clearly see the value of, of it? And, you know, eventually I, I learned, that, and I think Elizabeth, because Elizabeth is me, as I said, that the, the message is really humility, and that is that we write these books, as I say in the book, because they are a bulwark against historical bullshit. Nobody knows more about this particular late 20th century radical feminist group than Elizabeth Ranke. Nobody, and nobody probably ever will. So if anybody speaks about that thing in the press, Elizabeth is probably going to hear about it. And if they say something that is incorrect, uh, she'll be there to tell them they're incorrect. And, and I want to return to this, she'll have the cred to be believed because she, she has been through the mill, right? That produces these people that know the truth and people trust her. And, you know, if you look back on the history of the 20th century, there's lots of moments where people take history and they, they abuse it in various ways. And they say they tell a story from it, but the history that they actually recount is false in some way. It's tendentious or it's factually incorrect or it's biased or I don't know what you want to call it, but it's just not quite right. It just might not be the story might not have been contextualized well or whatever it is. But the fact of the matter is that the historian is always there, this 90 sort of narrow specialist to say, yeah, that's all wrong. You really have this wrong. And, you know, I, th I think this is a very, very valuable thing. It's kind of like I, I think I say this in the book. It's like insurance. You know, you probably will never use it. But when you need it, you really need it. And, and, and we have it. I mean, the, the, the historical culture of the West, I don't know about other places, but we have it. We have lots of people who are experts on little bitty things. So if you try to use the past for your present, you better get it right because we're out there and we're watching. <laughs> um, so, yeah, um, you know, it's like those who, what is the expression? Those who forget it. Um, uh, no, no, not that one. I was thinking uh, those who, those who wait also serve. What is that expression? I can't remember, but in any event, I think it's from Shakespeare or something. But in, in any event, yeah, I mean, we wait. We wait and we study. And when, and when the shit hits the fan and somebody gets it all wrong, we're there to tell them that they get it all wrong. Now that doesn't say we don't fight amongst ourselves, we do, but you, you know, but we're there. We're there and we've looked at the documents and we can tell you what happened. And so that's a good thing and that's what she decides right before she croaks. So she, you know, has a Well, I was going to say I, I won't I won't give away yeah. the ending. Uh but you you I gave it away. Spoiler yeah. there. Uh, right. And, and obviously, you know, Elizabeth is you. Yeah, she's kind of You're yeah. Elizabeth. You're 
you're sort of very much still with us. So I, I guess the kind of the question is, have, have you got more books in you? I mean, running the network is, you know, if it's all right, I, I wanted to say one more thing about trust. And that is, in order for historians to serve the function that uh, I think that they should and do, and the one that Elizabeth comes to realize that they do and hope that they do, they have to have the trust of sort of people who aren't historians, of common people, of ordinary people. And if they don't have that trust, then the historians themselves will not be believed. And there have been things that I've seen happen in the last little while of historians who essentially have, they have been challenged by their colleagues using what I think are sort of standard run-of-the-mill German model critical techniques. And they've said to them, you know, I don't think you got this quite right. And those historians have not responded in a way that I think is very proper. They have dismissed their colleagues. They have not engaged them and they have not looked at the evidence. They have just essentially refused to engage in this critical debate. And I think the reason is political. And I don't like that because um, this just is poison for the entire discipline. We have to maintain the trust of the people who will listen to us when they need to be told whether something is right or wrong. So when we get it wrong, we have to admit it. That is, after all, the way science works, right? You uh, gather some evidence, you form a hypothesis, you test the hypothesis, and this is all done retroactively in history. And then if you're wrong, which you most certainly will be, you adjust the hypothesis and you do it again. And this is what historical criticism should do, is that you looked at the evidence. Now I'm going to look at the evidence and we'll see if I found the same thing. And you have to do it in an atmosphere of trust and collegiality. And what I see broken down, at least in American academia and maybe more generally, is that trust has been broken. That people do not think of their colleagues as colleagues anymore. They think of them as political opponents and therefore they retrench and they refuse to engage them. And uh, I'm not pointing fingers at any side here. I'm saying everyone, it seems to be doing this. And it is profoundly unhealthy, just profoundly. And it really kind of amazes me, to be honest with you. I mean, I'm not a young guy, but uh, I just have to look on in amazement when I see two professors, one professor says to the other professor, I think you may have gotten this wrong. And then the other professor just says, well, I'm just not going to listen to you. I'm not going to engage you. I'm not going to talk to you. I just find that just so disturbing because the result is that the public gets these two messages and they don't know which one to choose from. They're not experts. They can't go look at the footnotes. They can't go look at the documents. They're going to wait for us to decide, but we can't decide because we're too busy. I don't know. The expression in the United States is having a pissing contest or something. <laughs> I don't know what it is, but you know, I, it's just a profoundly alien thing to me. And I find it very disturbing for the whole discipline because we just have to maintain that trust. If we don't have the trust of the population, we'll kind of end up a little bit like, and this is, you know, this should be laid at Donald Trump's doorstep immediately. I mean, he's not, not only did Americans not trust the media before Donald Trump, they really don't trust the yeah. media now. And, yeah. and Jesus Christ, this is really a problem because who are you going to trust exactly? I'm not going to go out and look up the news myself. Am I? 
<laughs> if I want to know what's going on in the Mueller investigation, I'm not going to go look. I need people to go look for me. And now that they've basically been poisoned, I don't know who to trust. So it's a similar sort of thing. Yeah. With, with what's what I think has happened in American academic culture is that this notion of collegiality and, you know, criticism and the noble opposition, that's just fallen by the wayside. And this is a disaster. Yeah. And, and you know, to, to continue that analogy, the, the media has been involved in particular scandals of bad practice and, you know, kind of not doing the, the sort of uh, legwork that, you know, Elizabeth, for example, has been trained in and, and what makes her a good historian. Yeah, Elizabeth is a really good scholar. Yeah, Elizabeth is a good scholar. She is serious, man. She her, her allegiance is to the truth, period. You know, she has politics. Of course she does. Who doesn't? But she does surely tries not to let that – and maybe you could kind of read something into the choices she made and so on and so forth about what to study. But she's pretty much believes in this thing, neutrality and objectivity. I know these are out of fashion, but she believes that stuff. And uh, at least I do. <laughs> maybe she – I think she does too. And, and she's probably would also – I haven't written that chapter yet because she's dead. But she, she, uh, <laughs> she – in the afterlife, she's looking down on us going, tisk, tisk, tisk. Grow up. <laughs> when you're wrong, say you're wrong. And when you're right, fight. So but don't just disengage. Are you going to do something to kind of address this? I mean, it's, it's there in, in the, in the current book, but yeah, like a, a kind of broader, um, no, I don't think I have any more books in me. You know, I think I might just have a YouTube series because that seems to work much better at getting the word out. You know, for much of my career, I have been saying people shouldn't write books and they should do other things. And um, I never seem to be able to follow my own advice. So uh, I may write another book about something like this. But, you know, I mean, again, the New Books Network. I mean, that, that is an effort actually to get the information in these books. So keep writing them, get these books out to people. And, and you know, we're very gratified that uh, we can bring what people like Elizabeth have to say to the world. And it turns out the world is much more intelligent than or interested at least than we than we thought that it was in, in the era of, you know, three television stations and or three television channels or even 50 with – cable that people will listen to this stuff and and i think that's really wonderful and it's gratifying for the otters it's gratifying for me because you're interviewing me i'm gratified i want to be paid attention to i'm going to admit <laughs> i want people to read my books or pay attention to me i don't see what's wrong with that so i don't know maybe thanks for listening to new books in critical theory on this episode i was talking to marshall poe about how to read a history book the hidden history of history which was published by zero books <laughs>